everything is great. Totally fine. Let me tell you. Everything's under control. It's great. This is what happens when Jason doesn't host. Oh, come on. <laughs> it breaks things. The Incomparable. Number 405. May 2018. Welcome back to The Incomparable, everyone. I'm your host, Dan Moore, and sitting in for Jason Snell. We're back with the second of our two-part episode on childhood canon. That's not canons that we put children in that we do not recommend that. That is against men. I'm told it's a violation of some things. It's something I've actually considered with my 16-year-old. No one saw me put my sister in that (laughs) canon. We have an all-star panel with us tonight. I'm going to introduce them in the order that they will be talking not drafting this isn't a draft not a draft but we will be going in an episode in, in an order generated by our good friends at random.org Random. yeah thank you uh going first quinn rose is here hi quinn oh hello happy to be here uh we're glad to have you. you're leading off the order no pressure there very exciting and and still a child hey compared <laughs> to the rest of us <laughs> i don't know there are some childish among us and she would not yeah. be my first pick <laughs> 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 kathy campbell's here hi kathy Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Lisa Schmeiser, whose brainchild this was, is condemned to go third. Hi, Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you've credited me for this idea, I don't know what sort of dark door we've opened. I was relying on anonymity. (laughs) (laughs) Always a mistake. Unfortunately, that ship has sailed. Not my fault. Going fourth, and you'll notice that random.org amazingly has has given all the the women on the panel the first four spots <laughs> as it should be as it should be shannon sutter hi shannon hola freakies <laughs> and now we're rapidly descending chip sutter is also here hi chip <laughs> oh Whoa. great thanks oh, fine <laughs> i'm quitting the fantastic four <laughs> David Lore will be following that. Hi, David. Hi, Jason. I'm just really excited that after five years, we're finally doing an episode about canon starring William Conrad. I, 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 no. I'm not yeah. Jason. I don't have to acknowledge any of this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Rounding us out, Brian Hamilton. Hi, Brian. Hi, uh, I'm the, what, seventh part in this round, so everyone else starts singing, and I'll start singing sometime after that, and it'll be great. This is going to be the best rendition of Row Your Boat. Merrily, 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 merrily. (laughs) And I, as the host who has already lost control of this podcast, (laughs) will be going last. As we don't the need Oh, you thought you had control at all. That's so <laughs> the, cute. The real control is, is the friends you make along the way. Hosting. <laughs> the control is an illusion. Uh, all right. So this isn't, as I mentioned before, this is not a draft. We're just going to talk about some things that really influenced us in our childhood. We are going to have a pretty lax definition of childhood. If it was important to you and you feel like you were a child at the time, that's okay by us. We're not here to judge anybody unless we are judging you. Um, so without any further ado, let's kick it off. Quinn, what do you got for us? The second that this topic was announced, I knew immediately it had to be my first choice and that that would be Harry Potter. There are millions of hours devoted to this franchise and 
now as an adult, there's, you know, context and criticism and all of this stuff, but it would be ridiculous for me to claim that this is not the single most influential media property on my entire life. Some of my earliest memories are reading Harry Potter. Um, my parents actually used to read it to me when I was really little before bed. And then I asked them to stop because I could read it faster over their shoulder, <laughs> which they later told me was, um, they were torn between being proud and annoyed. I was a, absolutely a Harry Potter kid. I was the perfect age for it. I remember staying up till midnight when the last book was released and I dressed up like Luna Lovegood and pretty much Aww. everyone in my family got a copy of the book and we were all reading it and no one could share any spoilers and it was a really stressful week while we all finished this last book. <laughs> and it's just carry, been carried with me through my entire life. Um, it got me into the world of fantasy from which I have never emerged. And I was actually not one of the people who got really into fan communities based on Harry Potter, which is a really popular thing. It's a lot of people's um, like first online fan communities were based on Harry Potter. I was a bit too young for that, but it has, even now I've experienced it as sort of the great fandom equalizer because everyone in my age group who exists as a fan on the internet seems to have Harry Potter in common. And it's something that we can always go back to um, as we're making connections over new properties and everything. And also it's great and I love it. And I have so, so many pictures of me dressed as various Harry Potter characters throughout my life. And I'm just grateful that it exists. I'm feeling very old now. <laughs> <laughs> my cousins and their kids were like, who are probably, you know, in your age range, maybe a little older, were also of those like going out to the midnight, you know, midnight releases and getting dressed up. So I definitely got that vicariously through them, even if it wasn't, you know, I was a little old for it at the time, but no vicarious for me. I, I was deep into the Potter fandom, but I started in my 30s. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, same. <laughs> I, I galloped through the first four books because the fourth one came out just before the 16-year-old was born. And I, I raced through them before he was born and never got to the last three because I had children. <laughs> oh, see, this is before I had kids. And back in my abundant free time as a newlywed, I used to lead a, a brownie troupe. And our council did a movie day every year for all the little brownies. And they were showing Harry Potter and... And the Chamber of Secrets. And all of my little brownies came in their uniforms and they all had Hogwarts cloaks on over the uniforms. And I'm like, <laughs> whatever, you little weirdos, let's go and watch a movie. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So you were like a parent before you were a parent? Yeah, that means you can go home at the end of the night. <laughs> that's exactly. True. That's, that's right. True. I got to yes. be the fun adult as opposed to when the glares of people on pool decks now. And, um, so I watch this. So I'm in the movies with these kids and they're all cackling in anticipation at different parts of the movies because they had already read Harry Potter and the Chamber of the Secrets. And because they had read it, they knew it was coming. They're all cackling when, when, <laughs> when things are coming up. And I was amazed at how engaged they were in the movie and how delighted they were by knowing what was going to happen. And so I went to a used bookstore and bought the first four Harry Potter books. And long story short, I have uh, like <laughs> fast forward to attending book release parties at midnight and by book number seven, wearing a Team Snape t-shirt to a book premiere party. And nice. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but kids got me into it like sideways. It was like a gateway thing because I saw how engaged they were and I I was like I want to see why I want to see what what these these first and second graders love so much about it and it was easy to figure out I was in college when the first movie came out and I had a a sweet mate that was like oh my gosh you have to read these and so I devoured them and enjoyed going to like opening weekend for the first movie and I was like oh this is fun fast 
forward to 2005 when Half-Blood Prince came out. Um, it also came out on, um, like right before I got married to the point where two days before my wedding, I was like speed reading through the book um, <laughs> instead of concentrating like on any sort of wedding prep. It was just like, I got to finish this story. You would have been horribly distracted at the wedding otherwise. That was sensible. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, like I was just taking care of my future husband and the event that was going to happen. Yeah. Well, Harry Potter, I think certainly lots of resonance for a lot of people. So great, great pick there. Uh, let's uh, move on. Kathy, what do you got for us? This is a rather large umbrella, and I'm very aware... Oh, an umbrella. You, an umbrella really influenced yes, your childhood. Umbrellas. So Mary Poppins. <laughs> the immediate answer when this question was asked came in the form of Disney. And I tried to narrow it down, <laughs> but oh, I just boy. can't. So Mary Poppins. So yeah. does it include the Marvel and Star Wars yeah, properties at this Avengers, point? Or just like yeah. <laughs> So specifically in the 80s and 90s, I'm thinking, I mean... Disney movies were pretty much the only movies we were we went to the theater for growing up. Um, we never so this was back when the Disney Channel was considered a premium channel. Um, and my grandparents had it on their TV, so we would go over there and anytime we were visiting, we would watch Disney Channel. Um, but four times a year they had the free preview, and those were the best times for television because we could sit and watch all of these shows that we wanted to see at home. We also, you know, the magical world of Disney Sunday nights were mm-hmm. movies and the Disney afternoon, um, with the fantasticness of Tailspin and DuckTales yes! and Darkwing yes! Duck and Gargoyles and like all of these amazingness. <laughs> and it really influenced me because I wanted to be a Disney animator growing up. Like that was my goal until I got to college and realized that I didn't have the push to actually be a Disney animator. But that doesn't matter because growing up, that was what I was going to be. Um, I still greatly love Disney World, Disneyland, all of that. I did a college internship at Disney World, which was amazing. I mean, we owned all the VHS tapes, some of the beta, like, as say what you want about the company as a whole and it's being a monopoly, blah, 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 all of that. But Disney was my childhood, period. Like, can't even say enough about it. I think I had two eras of Disney, so to speak. Uh, when I was growing up, um, it was uh, things like Herbie the Love Bug and other live action yes. things that they were yep. getting into. Uh, Cat from Outer Space, uh, um, things uh, like I love that. Cat from and, then, and then once I'm in college, the Renaissance happened, and Little Mermaid, and Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. and Aladdin, and all of those movies that are still some of my absolute favorites today. And, you know, here we, we are, you know, so many of us in college are just like, you know, wait a minute, it's like, Disney's back, let's go. Yes, that's a, it's a lot, and I, I'm with you. I mean, I grew up watching Fantasia, Snow White, all the classics, Herbie the Lugbug, too, all the live-action stuff. Um, that was because I think we all go through that period, right? Where like that's the kind of stuff that our parents know we can uh-huh. they can like plop you down in front of the television yep. and not worry too much about the content thereof. <laughs> all right, Lisa, what would be your childhood pick? The first pick that comes to mind is the book uh, "The Phantom Tollbooth" by Norton Jester, mm. illustrated mm. by Jules Pfeiffer. Yeah. And I read this book for the first time in fourth grade, and it blew the doors of my mind wide open, as um, Jim Morrison might say. 
<laughs> and, <laughs> and the reason it did was because it is an extended argument for, um, learning as, and I mean, learning as separate from education. And as a kid who had been sifted early into gifted classes and who was surrounded by other little poindexters who were already grade grabbing and people who had conflated, uh, being able to recite facts with being smart to, Read something that gave you the idea that learning and using your mind went beyond having the right answer, but it went towards having a deeper appreciation for the fundamentals of a subject and having the playfulness and wit to, to um, have fun with them on your own. That was a really revolutionary topic. You know, there, there's actually a quote in the book um, where Mila, the main character, is arguing with the dodecahedron about how to... Um, how he arrived at an answer and the dodecahedron sputters back as long as the answer is right who cares if the question is wrong <laughs> and the first time i got that framing i was like oh, no wait the question matters as much as the answer and how you get to the answer matters too and it doesn't have to matter to anyone else it just has to matter to you so again it's a book that plays with a lot of really beautiful imagery uh for example there's a part where milo has to direct the orchestra that is responsible for making the sunrise in the world and it maps all of these different colors to all of these different instruments like a piccolo has light lemon yellow and the um the bass viols in the back are responsible for for violet it's so you know that's amazing and mind blowing to think about, and it's a taste of synesthesia if you if you don't have that. There's another part where he's eating different letters of the alphabet, and each one has a different flavor. Like an A is juicy and fresh and crisp, and um, Q is dry and dusty. And it was the it, it was just the type of book that really makes you stop and wonder what kind of qualities you assign to things or what kind of qualities you infer. And it encourages you to be curious and observant and playful and to treat your own mind as the first and finest and best source of your own entertainment. And I just, again, it hit it exactly the right time. Well, let's not jump to conclusion. Um, <laughs> Very <laughs> no, nice. I, I love that reference. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. I, I, I have vivid memories of reading this book myself. Um, and Jules Pfeiffer's illustrations especially are like lodged in my memory. So, so one of the elegant. earliest remember, like one of the earliest memories I have of being creeped out by something in that weird eldritch way was the terrible trivium oh. who has no face. Yes. Um, but it's like dressed in the suit. And that I, I would just Google the image to see if I find it's it. And it's so exactly fine. as I yes. remembered it in my mind. Uh, just like just off pudding to the extreme and i remember that really it was one of like a couple images from my childhood that really freaked me out but i love that book and i, I actually really like the movie too um which goes it's both live it starts in live action and then goes into animation what a clever um, way to do that yeah, yeah yeah so that's a fa fantastic book uh, I, I really, I love that book so much. Yeah. Now, there's another quote I want to leave with everybody, just just to give you an idea of where, how this book approaches things, where um, Milo's quest is to rescue the princesses Rhyme and Reason, who have been wrongly imprisoned. And one of the princesses counsels him with, you must never feel badly about making mistakes, as long as you take the trouble to learn from them. For you often learn more by being wrong for the right reasons than you do by being right for the wrong reasons. Oh, yeah, I love it. No. Yeah. A lot of complexity there. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking it over right now, even. Yeah. <laughs> Still struggling with it after all these years. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's fantastic. That's a great pick. I love that book. It's just, a, it's really great. If you haven't read it, I mean, even if you're like, even if you've missed your childhood, it's still worth reading <laughs> because it is a, it is really well put together. 
Hey everybody, it's Jason. Did you miss me? Dan's doing a great job. And I was already on a childhood canon episode, so I don't need to be on another one. Anyway, I am here, my voice is here now, to tell you about a sponsor. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by Pingdom, the company that offers uptime monitoring and web performance management. You're probably more familiar with Pingdom than you might think, because Pingdom is helping to keep your favorite site online. Evernote, BuzzFeed, Netflix, a whole lot more. If you used any of these sites recently and run into no trouble, you may not notice when they just work, but that may be because of Pingdom. Websites are pretty sophisticated now, and they've got a lot of different moving parts, contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and a whole lot more. Pingdom lets you check the availability of all of these functions. Pingdom isn't just about getting a message when your entire site goes down. They also care about the important interactions different people have on your site throughout, and they'll let you know if they're not working. It's easy to get started. All Pingdom needs is the URL you want to monitor. They will take care of the rest. So go to pingdom.com slash snell right now for a 14 14- day free trial with no credit card required and let ping to make sure your website stays up and warns you immediately when something is wrong when you sign up after the 14-day free trial use the code snell at checkout and you'll get 30 percent off your first invoice that's pingdom.com slash snell offer code snell at checkout thank you pingdom for supporting the incomparable all right shannon What would you like to share? I'm going to share um, the childhood visits to my grandparents, um, as uh, somebody else mentioned, uh, and different TV stations from the ones that I was used to. And the TV station that uh, very cleverly, after the like school time uh, of the region would happen, would show this really interesting cartoon called Battle of the Planets. Oh, yes. Half of my fondness for that, I think, is because there was no other way for me to watch it at the time. Um, it was only on at the station at my grandparents' house, and it was only on, you know, once a day. So when I would go stay with grandparents for a couple weeks in the summer, I would, you know, uh, mini binge as best I could on this thing. <laughs> but it it grabbed me like nothing I'd ever seen before. Uh, this was my introduction to Japanese animation of any kind. Um, and I think that, you know, watching that and the memories of that are what tripped my trigger when Voltron came around, because it's the same tropes, the same character types. Um, you know, you have your, your team of young people and you've got the, the chubby one and you've got the short one and you've got the girl and, um, you've got the leader. Um, all of these things wrapped up together. And like I said, just the, the concept of the teamwork, you had your villain. Uh, it was really interesting looking back years later. Uh, and you know, I, I remember this and I remember Battle of the Planets. And then, you know, later on, they repackaged it as G Force. Uh, you know, basically the same animation, uh, changed the characters' names around. Uh, it was really interesting to see how much of it got sanitized for North American television because the original had profanity. It had nudity. <laughs> the main villain was a hermaphrodite presenting as a half man, half woman, which was kind of clear in the, in the Battle of the yeah. Planets version. If you were paying attention, I think it was Battle of the Planets version that tried to cover it up by, you know, oh, yeah. basically Zoltor's sister when, when, he, when he looked too feminine. That was his sister. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, that definitely grabbed my attention and is something I remembered as a kid. Um, and, uh, again, like, you know, led to Voltron and other Japanese, uh, animation in college, things like that. And of course, you know, here I am back, you know, deep in Voltron hell again, now that Netflix is showing it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really glad that this is not a draft. 
because otherwise I'd be really upset right now because my wife actually would have sniped me if this had been a draft. I knew I married you for a reason. But it's not, so you guys could still stay married. Not, not a draft. draft. Well, I'd, and I'd sort of fold it. I'd cast a slightly wider net there talking about 70s anime in general uh, because Battle of the Planets and Star Blazers. You just sniped uh, me. <laughs> it's not a draft. Not a draft. <laughs> Um, but yeah, bat- bat- Battle of the Planets in specific was just weird and different and not knowing anything about Japanese animation um, in the first, you know, where this stuff comes from. I could tell that it was slightly more pleasant to listen to than Speed Racer that came out around the same time. You know, all, that whole raft of uh, 70s. Uh, Japanese animation showing up on UF- UHF channels uh, just completely randomly and legions of kids like me and Shannon not knowing why this was so cool and different but just enthralled nonetheless. It primed the pump for me for Robotech uh, 10 years later. The influences of those shows I mean hell look at look at look at the matrix look at the watch literally look at the wachowski speed racer you know those cartoons at that age for certain creative people it, it they laid the groundwork for things that happened in american comics and movies and things like that for forever that's serious childhood canon right there mm-hmm. star blazers yeah I just that actually turned me on to serials in general because I was five or six and it was on every day after school. And when the penny dropped that every episode built on the one before it, I was hooked. And I was fascinated by the aesthetic because it was so very, very different mm-hmm. than, than anything yes. else I had seen at the time. And I kept trying to figure out why it was so different. And, um, I, Everything about it, because it has spacefaring, and it is impossible to overstate how big a deal going to space was, and manned spaceflight, and manned space habitation. Like, it was all over the place in the 1970s, and it's hard to overstate how much that captured the imagination of every kid in elementary school at that time. And yeah. It mm-hmm. had that. You had sibling rivalry, which is something that, of course, is near to near and dear to the hearts of many children. Um, <laughs> it was just you had these really cool aliens and the gamelons. You, of course, had uh, Queen Starship who looked like a princess. It was just, it was a, it was amazing. God, yeah, that's that's definitely canon material. I mean, yeah, and uh, that was the to sort of try to wrap a bow around it. If you look at Star Star Blazers. The first season where they're flying away to Iskandar to save Earth from radiation poisoning and things like that. There is one episode of this that somehow they didn't edit out for American audiences. That is simply the ship leaving the solar system and leaving communications range. And it is it is an episode that is full of nothing but characters saying goodbye i remember that episode still i haven't seen that episode in 30 something years and i can remember just sitting there with the enormity that sinking in i think i cried Mm -hmm. you know it's funny i mean i i I, these were all a little bit before my time but my cousins who are about a decade older than me like i still have one cousin who's like will bring up star blazers with that that just like (laughs) affection in his voice like oh you remember star blazers uh and 
I came to it a little late. I mean, like uh, Japanese animation stuff on on TV, even the eighties, you know, was very sparse and weird. Like because you had things like Voltron, which were re-edited and like mm-hmm. sort of weird pastiches of a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I, I watched. I caught a little bit of the early like Dragon Ball Z run, um, but it wasn't until much later in my you know like my late te- mid to late teens that I really started getting into anime and that was a a huge change like like i think you were saying lisa like about like trying to figure out like why why does this not quite compute with all the cartoons that i've been watching because i guess all the stuff that you watch during the 80s at least i watched during the 80s like you know you're you're everything from like gi joe to mask to like all these other like teenage mutant ninja turtles all this stuff like it did have that like everything just reset at the end of an episode and to me that was always so frustrating because i wanted these much longer i wanted to know what happened next and there was no concept of what happened next on any of those shows because at the end of it it was just like all right we just reset everything back to positions and we start all over again so there was something deeply satisfying about that style of storytelling that was just not done in that era so yeah i'm i'm with you okay david what do you got for us? well actually that all leads into to mine really well when i was thinking of what what the childhood canon what were the gateways into the canon for me i actually thought of literal gateways like i didn't have a specific book or show or something, I thought about, you know, where did I discover all of these things? And one of the places I discovered them was Channel 44 WTOG, Tampa, St. Petersburg. And that was back when you had five channels, right? You had mm-hmm. ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, and an independent. Maybe you had two independents if you were lucky. Uh-huh. We just had Channel 44. And that was where you went for everything. Star Trek at 5 o'clock every day. Twilight Zone at 11 o'clock every day. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Battle of the Planets. Star Blazers. Ultraman. The Lone Ranger. Superman. The Adventures of Superman. The 60s Batman. And then you had the, the creature feature with Dr. Paul Bearer. A double feature of all the monster movies on on Saturday afternoon. So you got all the kaiju and all the universal monsters. And you even had all the Abbott and Costello meet the various monsters movies. And that was where I learned all of that as a child. I mean, just mainlining it. That's, I mean, the, the easy joke for, for when we came up with this in the beginning was, well, everyone gets Star Trek, right? Cause that was, you know, I certainly for Jason and I, we both, that was like the first big genre thing we knew. This is where I found it. Right. And, and then there was all this other genre stuff right after it. And yeah, it had Bewitched and Genie and Hogan's Heroes and all those too. <laughs> but you know, I went, I went for all of these things. So yeah, I, I think I watched that channel more than anything else for the first 12 years of my life. Even, and even, uh, Space 1999 and, you know, lesser things like that. Uh, that was the place to go for all of that. Thunderbirds. Oh my God. Thunderbird. This, this is a portion of the show where David just lists things from his childhood. Yeah. David reads yeah. the TV guide. <laughs> yeah. We had a couple of those independent channels. I mean, by the time, again, since I'm a little younger, like we had Fox in the mix in addition. We had weirdly, cause I live in Boston. We had two PBS stations. That's Boston uh, though. <laughs> yep. That's Boston. I'm honestly uh, surprised you don't have more. Yeah. Well, they're both under the same ages, so it's not... They just, like, had so much programming, they needed two channels. Uh, And then we had two independent channels, uh, which is where I, you know, all the syndication stuff that I used to see, like, including Next Generation and all that stuff was on, you know, Channel 56 and Channel 38 had all the uh, old movies every night and stuff like that. So, yeah, I totally, totally remember 
speaking of listening things, so, so because this was the seventies too, uh, it wasn't so distant. Like I think about this right now, Star Trek, the next generation is a longer distance from when it premiered to today than the shows that I'm about to say, but they, they were even running things like science fiction theater and Alcoa presents one step beyond, which were like the early fifties. They were before the outer limits and twilight zone, but Again, they were they were doing these creepy, uh, O. Henry twisty monster stories, and you know all these kind of things. Um, so that when people ask why, how do you have this arcane knowledge of all these things? Well, I I saw them. It's not like I researched them. I just watched them because they were still there. You might find them on YouTube now. All right. So that's probably the first time a television channel has ever been selected as an item. But <laughs> I took that Monty Ashley uh, yeah. mode <laughs> yeah. of... Everyone, everyone needs a Monty Ashley. Pick from an angle. Brian Hamilton, what is your pick? So I love music. I am a very musical person. Uh, I sing a lot in situations where it's usually not appropriate, like on podcasts. And I, uh, when I was thinking back to what started my love of music and my appreciation for its role in everyday life, I thought of Blue's Clues, where everyone sings and dances all the time. But I, I don't have much to say about Blue's Clues because I haven't seen it in years, even though it meant a lot Here's to me when I was a kid. Mail, it, never fails. <laughs> it, it makes me want to wag my tail when it comes, I want to wail. That was an era that just passed me by. <laughs> I also thought about Repo the Genetic Opera, which uh, has its own whole episode on Unjustly Maligned you can listen okay, to. Okay, that's a switch. Blue's Clues to Repo the Genetic <laughs> Opera. There we go. They're basically the same. And uh, the thing I'm officially going to pick for the childhood canon uh, draft, not a draft, sorry, excuse me, Uh, the childhood canon, not a draft, is Pink Floyd's 1979 album, The Wall, uh, by Roger Waters, David Gilmore et al., mostly Roger Waters. This was the first album that... What, that felt as theatrical as, say, a stage show and really hit me and impacted me in a way that just an album could do all the things that a big stage show did with giant orchestras and sweeping storylines. It, it, it's a, it tells a story of a uh, rock star that slowly spirals into a deep depression and things happen. But it wound up hitting me at just the right time in my life where it opened my mind to ways that music could tell stories and impact people in ways that were more than just, oh, this song is fun. Yay. Uh, I really, really love this. My first ever rock opera I listened to, which is actually kind of debatable, is Green Day's American Idiot because, you know, oh. it's just punk music that kind of told... Sh- oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I'm just going to go take some Geritol now. Yeah, mm-hmm. feeling old. Get off my lawn! <laughs> uh, American Idiot, uh, rock opera that didn't really have much, uh, like, depth to it. It was like a story told through punk songs, but whatever. Pink Floyd's The Wall hit me uh, right when I, I needed the lesson that was all about this is what music can do and this is what it can mean to people that listen to it. So Pink Floyd's The Wall. So you're saying you did need some education. Uh, yes. Not thought control, Leave though. the kids alone. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Right. Every, everyone knows Another Brick in the Wall, uh, Comfortably Numb, Hey You, those are the big songs. But there's a lot more to it than just those. <laughs> I, I have to confess, I've never listened to the entire album, and I have trouble... <gasps> I am not a Pink Floyd... Like... I appreciate what they did, but like I, I never got into it. I never, I, I always had trouble with like I had friends who were super into it when I was a teenager, and for whatever, re- or actually for reasons that may become apparent when it's my turn. Uh, it was- <laughs> 
<laughs> not a thing that I ever mentioned. Like, I've, and I've tried since then because I like a lot of other like sort of classic, you know, sixties and seventies rock. And I, I have trouble with Pink Floyd. I feel like I feel like I'm too dumb. I feel that's what it is. It's like I was like, oh man, there's so many layers here. I'm not getting. No, no, not at all. I like the wall. I've never, I've never really gotten into any of the other albums. But I do like the wall. Partly, I think it was because wish of the you movie. were here. Wish you were wish was, you were here was my wish first. Wish you were here is good stuff. Yeah, I mean, th- I like stuff on various albums. I, I just the wall is the only one I think I like all the way through. But but like I said, it's it's the movie that did that for me. For me, I was raised on uh, '60s and '70s classic rock thanks to my parents. So I got a, to- a whole ton of uh, Bruce Springsteen because I was from New Jersey, and uh, you know Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, all that stuff. So Pink Floyd was my gateway drug, and like they were another band that was on circulation on those radio stations. So when I was going through their albums, once I had access to albums, <laughs> I uh, I found The Wall, and it was my uh, Pink Floyd's like rock songs on the radio were my gateway drug into the weird stuff that they do on this album all right we're around to the end of round one which means it's my turn uh and surprising no one uh i'm going to pick star wars but i'm not gonna pick the star wars movie i'm not gonna pick the star wars movies which we talked about um because so this is the the thing that's a little interesting um for me I was born in 1980, which is the year Empire Strikes Back came out, which was like less than a month after I was born. So really, even though like I did go, like my parents took me to see Return of the Jedi in the movie theater, like upon re-release in like 84, 85, like, and I have some memories of it that were mostly me being terrified. uh, Most of my childhood, Star Wars was like a closed book. It was a finished thing. Like it didn't... As much as I, I loved it, and I remember watching the movies, like when family would come to visit or renting them from the video store, etc. Like most of the time I was growing up, it was all like stories, like like legitimately stories in the past. And so the thing that really turned me back into a Star Wars fan, and and for a lot of time in the interim, I I did like delve much more heavily into things like Star Trek because they were going concerns, right? Like I was watching Next Generation at times mm. because it was it was on. Um, but the thing that really like reignited my love of Star Wars was Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire, uh, which came out in 91 and was basically perfectly positioned for me. Like I remember seeing a copy of this book in the store and being like, wait, this isn't just like the book of the movies. This is like other st- there's this weird dude with like blue skin on it there's a guy who looks like a crazy obi-wan on the front like what is happening uh and it, it really sort of not only did it kickstart the whole expanded universe and, and basically all these ancillary materials but it really showed that there were so many stories that could take place within this framework within this universe uh that it gave me a huge uh sort of it welcomed me in in some ways and like let me feel validated about like stories that i got to then create and think up about all these characters and explore all these elements that aren't discussed in the movies and i had you know at this point i was starting to pour over these movies over and over again uh i listened to the the radio dramas over and over and over again um and you know i listened to the music soundtracks over and over and over again which is why i was probably not listening to pink floyd (laughs) um but it was it was all these ancillary materials that really turned revitalized what at that point was a franchise that had not been you know really active for closing in on a decade at that point um so yeah i have like uh, on my bookshelf here i have my hardcover copies of that entire trilogy because they are you know they're the the two the the like 
cornerstones of my love of Star Wars. And I, I actually got to meet Timothy Zahn a year ago or so at a convention and like tell him how much those books meant to me, which was just a huge moment for me, especially Aww. as someone who then went on to become a science fiction writer. Cause like those were like huge inspirations. Like that was how I was getting started and like, Oh yeah, I can write science fiction. I can write science fiction about stories that I love so much. So all those ancillary materials really, that's, that's my pick. That was a huge influence and it set me off on like, you know, I'm writing fan fiction when I was a teenager. Major, uh, publishing my first work, self-publishing stuff, you know, on the internet in like the mid '90s, all that stuff. So for me, it's it's that that book, *Air of the Empire*, really got it all started. That might be the ultimate gateway. I think we're done. <laughs> well, we're done with with round one. <laughs> we may have time for another round, but we'll see how it goes. It's Jason. I'm back again. Things are going great, but I need to impose for just a minute to tell you about our other sponsor this week, Hover. You know, it's never been more important to build your own online identity. And one of the ways you do that is on the web with a domain. So when I left my job a few years ago and was setting up stuff on my own, what did I do? I registered a lot of domains, including the one that I use for my writing, sixcolors.com. We have, of course, the incomparable.com, which makes sense since this is the incomparable. It would not make as much sense if the incomparable was at glennfleischman.plumbing, right? Doesn't really make sense. Not that memorable. Well, maybe a little bit memorable, but you get my point. Your domain name says a lot about who you are and what you're offering on the web. I have collected so many domains. Some are for active projects. Some are for ideas that I might want to do a project down the road for. Um, some are little placeholder sites for brief events. Uh, some things I intend to use for decades. And really, that's the story. You can use a domain for whatever projects you're working on, but you got to get it. You got to register it. And the great thing about Hover is that they let you keep your domain separate from your hosting. So you'll never have to change hosting services and domains. You don't have to get stuck somewhere. You can choose the hosting service that's right for you and keep your domain separate so that if you change your hosts later, that's okay. Hover will still be there to monitor your domains. Hover offers this great feature called Hover Connect that lets you connect your domain name to a whole bunch of different website builders with just a few simple clicks. So once you've got that domain, you can connect it and get it going on whatever tool you're using to build your website. And they offer free Whois privacy. So bad people on the internet are not going to be able to look up your information and spam you or send junk mail to your house or I don't even know what bad things that bad guys do because they're bad. Anyway, if you want to show the world what you are passionate about, the first place you need to start is Hover. They are there to help you make that first step. Go to hover.com slash incomparable right now. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you, Hover, for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, let's go back around to the top of the order. Quinn, do you have another pick for us? All right. Well, I wanted to have a good variation on stuff to pick, uh, but then I gave up on that and I'm picking another book series. <laughs> <laughs> and this one is the Discworld books by <gasps> Terry Pratchett. Yes, yes, nice. yes, we all love them. Oh my god, I love them so much. They're so important to me and. Discworld especially um, was actually a huge part of my relationship with my dad as a kid. Like I've always been very close to my dad and he would listen to Discworld audiobooks in the car. And so I would hear bits and pieces of them. And then I started reading them. I actually don't 
even remember like a time before I was aware of Discworld. I was just like emerged and was like, ah, yes, the color of magic. (laughs) (laughs) But they're they're so lovely. And like the, the style of humor that Terry Pratchett has, I feel like is, I don't know if it was just perfect for me or if it is just instilled in me that specific brand of humor for the rest of my life. But that kind of dry wit and his use of footnotes and these little asides mm. are, that's the type of humor that I like. And I feel like that's the type of writing that I'm always channeling whenever I write anything, whether I'm trying to or not. Mm. And so the combination of this absolute delight in this world and in this series that I absolutely still have today. I haven't actually read all of them. Um, and I mean, he passed away a few years ago and I was so sad about that. And I, but I still like have these books out there that I haven't read yet because I don't want the world to finish. You gotta, you gotta so save jealous you gotta save of you for yeah, not having you. read them yet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I'm sure I will read them all someday, but oh, I, I can't. No, it's amazing. You have the law ahead of you. That's so great. Oh. oh, I'm so jealous. Quinn, I did the exact same thing. I have, I still have Terry Pratchett books to read. Even though I've read probably thirty of them, you know, like I still have a ton to read because there I know there are no more. So mm-hmm. you have to like parcel them out. I'm saving his collaboration with Stephen Baxter, but I mm. have read all the Discworld books. Um and I'm just super curious to get people's thoughts. Is there a particular group of books that you consider your through line or that you resonate with the most, like the Vimes books or the um, Lipwig von Moist, Moist books Moist, or Moist the Witches of Lanker or, um, the, or, or the Wizards and Rincewind? Because he does tend to loop back and back between different uh, aspects of Discworld. And I would love to hear what everybody, um, what, what tends to resonate with everybody. Well, I would say I love so many of so many of the different characters, but if I had to pick one, it would be the, the books that center around the guard and the night watch and vimes and all of that. And I think partially because I think those are some of the best books and also partially because those are my dad's favorites. And so we would talk about them a lot. As an adult, definitely the guards books, but as a kid, definitely Rincewind. <laughs> I love He's terrible and he's an awful, awful character, but I, I love the, him so much. And that was my um, my mother. Frog's pills. <laughs> yeah, my mother gave me these books in like when I was. I remember reading the first reading the Color Magic at camp. Uh, because my mother had gotten to me, I think I had already read um, Hitchhiker's Guide, and she was like, she had. My mother's a librarian, so my mother was always on the lookout for books. For me, <laughs> and she's like, ah, so you liked, you know, you liked that sort of funny stuff. Let's let's try this, and there's a bunch of them at that point. So that's how I sort of delved in. And so he always he always had a special place in my heart. Like I would read the other Terry Pratchett books came out, but then there I'd be like, oh my god, there's a new Rincewind book, and I would like run to the store and get it immediately. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I I, I haven't read them. And there's still I, time. I know. <laughs> and I there know. are so I, many of them. Think of the joy now you have coming. Them, and oh I'm my very God. excited. No, no. Like turning into Nanny Og is pretty much my life goal. Like that is where, that is where I hope my, that is where I hope that my golden years take me is, is into a comprehensive knowledge of singing a wizard staff always has a knob on the end and terrifying everything. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I think my cousin who is also a librarian is fond and a huge, huge Pratchett fan. The biggest I know is, says like, I always want to think I'm Granny Weatherwax, but I think I'm actually Nanny Ock. I, I felt like when I read them, cause everyone's like, Oh yeah, I want to be Granny Weatherwax. Like, no, you're Magret. That's it. You know, <laughs> you are Magret. And if you're lucky, you become Nanny Ock. <laughs> 
But yeah, I love those witches so much. Oh my God. That's what a great pick. What a wonderful pick. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic choice. Fantastic books. And glad that you could share them with everyone. Kathy, what's your second choice? Well, continuing the conversation about books, um, I am going with the Red Wall series by Brian mm. Jacques. This <laughs> is the book series that really like impassioned me for reading. Um, I loved the idea of, so anyone that doesn't know uh, what it is, it's a bunch of animals that live in an abbey and there's bad guys that are vermin like rats and uh, crows and weasels and ferrets. And there's this just immense world that's developed over the series of 22 books that they have. Every time a new one came out, it was always super exciting. Um, I just love the the entire world that was created, but also how full it was. So each uh, animal species, a lot of times would have different dialects. So I was able to learn um, how to like read different ways of speaking almost um, in the different animals and all of the food and the way it was described was so incredible. It always made me hungry. And it wasn't until later that I realized, of course, they're all vegetarian meals because they're like mice and rabbits and hedgehogs and stuff. So of course, they're not going to eat meat. Um, and then they came out with a cookbook. It was super exciting. And just like, I, I remember in elementary school, my very first book report I ever did was on uh, the very first Redwall book and just like all of these things and getting to share it with my brother who also loved them. Um, I can't even tell you how many times we pretended to be in the Abbey and gifts were around the Redwall series. And it just was a very distinct part of growing up. And I love the book so much and I can't wait for my daughter to read them. Yeah. You know, Red, Redwall is interesting. I, my person, I, I read the, I think that came out when I was in my early i don't remember like late like preteens or early teens um so i remember reading the first one of those and i read several of them thereafter um but my favorite red wall story of course is the incomparable related story where there was a bluffing question in the i think the second inconceivable episode ever <laughs> and literally no one on the podcast had heard of red wall <laughs> nobody yeah was i on that one i i had heard yeah. of it and i was on the wrong team i i knew it yeah maybe, yeah, maybe there's no one on the team that's right. Yeah, it was nobody on the team that. Yeah, that I was knew shocked it. that so many people had not heard of it. Because um, my- we were all sitting there going, "Come on, <laughs> we'll steal it." Yeah, I, I can also look over the uh, the living room and see the my girlfriend's bookcase, which has probably twenty Redwall books. On it. <laughs> nice, <laughs> so, nice. That explains a lot. Oh, it was also my first experience of um, an author dying before mm. finishing the series. Um, his son ended up, I believe his son ended up helping finish the, the final book in 2011. And it was just very like, Oh, it's done. Like there's no more coming type of a thing, which was very, very interesting. It's always a tough transition to make. Uh, all right. Good choice. Uh, Lisa, what have you got for us? 
I am switching from books to movies, and I am going to cite Ralph Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to make it a twofer, actually, and throw in the Rankin-Bass Return of the King, which came out like yes! two years later. Um, yes! And they were formative. They were formative. Because, um, again, they blew, you know, they... they I remember watching them and I have to point out, I saw the Lord of the Rings in the theater. My dad took me to see in the theater for reasons that remain beyond understanding. I was five. And, um, wow. <laughs> and um, while he did not carry me out screaming and sobbing, like, I think I was just kind of like in a catatonic <laughs> shock by the end of it. And, but the images that painted themselves on the inside of my eyelids the battle scene is remarkable and the aesthetics were again like nothing you ever see with kids cartoons and um this was kind of happening at the same time of a sort of golden age in animation because there was a lion the witch and the wardrobe special that it hit on tv roughly mm -hmm, the same time mm -hmm. which had a really similar look and feel but the lord of the rings was the first time i got the sense that comics that cartoons could be epic and complicated and not merely some daft princess gets lost in a woods and has like dwarves and animals to help her. Um, and again, I want to come back to that battle scene in the Lord of the Rings that Ralph Bakshi uh, used rotoscope and pioneered whole new ways of uh, doing animation. And it's all hand drawn, which when you think about it now is bananas. But it was this mm. mix of live action and hand drawn. And then two years later, Rankin Bass's Return of the King came out. Um and it was weird because it's the same universe and you're trying to reconcile it all, but it's got a really distinctive look and feel to it too. And then they discovered synthesizers. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. <laughs> and, and the voice of the Nazgul is, is run through a computer modulator and there's musical numbers. And, um, I think my mother regretted letting us see that because every time she asked my brother and I to do chores for the next 10 years, we'd start singing, when there's a whip, there's a way. <laughs> when there's Ooh. a whip, nice. there's a way. And my mom's like, just, 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 just mow the lawn. When there's a whip, <laughs> there's a whip. Not in public, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it was, you know, one of my first exposures to adaptations. Like I said, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe TV adaptation is in there too. But this was the one that let me understand eh, that you could have different looks and feels for telling the same story and that you then had the exciting job of trying to figure out which ones fit best and why you thought that. And it was just really cool to, to understand there could be different interpretations of the same source material. And that mm. is a skill set that comes in super handy if you read comics or Arthurian legend or mythology <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or, any, or, or anything later in life. Well, it's like I, I remember seeing the, the Rankin-Bass, The Hobbit in 1977 it was on yeah. nbc that's how vividly it stuck and and john houston as the voice of gandalf was you know that was just one of those huge voice acting things in my childhood and uh so it's so the return of the kings in the style of the hobbit and so you so for me it was having the ralph bakshi in the middle going hey that looks weird and at the time it came out i i was actually homesick from second grade with pneumonia for like four four weeks and one of the things that my grandparents got me to cheer me up was this movie magazine of the ralph bakshi version so i would pour over that over and over and over because i knew the books my mother had the books and you know and i didn't read them at that point, but it was still like this was a, an iconic thing on the bookshelf, right? And that and the, the Narnia books and everything. The thing that always 
amused me about the the Rankin Bass versions and the Lion Witch and the Wardrobe one. Like Rankin Bass were known for doing Rudolph and mm-hmm. you know all these yeah. sort of weird stop motion things, and here they're doing this literary thing that's actually pretty good and looks like nothing else they ever made. But they used Tolkien's own illustrations and his own drawings as inspirations for it, which is kind of cool. I distinctly remember these movies, uh, specifically Return of the King, um, for the musical side of things. The mm-hmm. minstrel Glenn like, Yarbrough. It's very vivid. And the road goes ever on. The Frodo of the Nine Fingers song um, I would use to tease my brother because <laughs> I'm a big sister and that is what we do. Um, but it always would creep him out. Um, so if I really was mad at him, I would just start singing Frodo of the Nine Fingers and he would run away crying. And uh, yeah, I'm a terrible person. I love you, Matt. <laughs> I, I think I saw the Hobbit animated series on broadcast on TV. It must have been done again in the 80s at some point, because that is my only memory of seeing these. I never really got exposed they definitely to them that much. Well, Yeah, they re-ran yeah, it I, several times. Oh, yeah. I definitely yeah. saw one. I remember watching it on the little TV that we had in the kitchen, like a little nine-inch television that was in the kitchen. <laughs> and like all I remember is like a scene with a mountain or something. Like It was very... For years, that was my... The Lonely over, Mountain. That was yeah. my overarching like image of these stories because I didn't read the books until much later. So, and I didn't even, I don't think I've ever, I confess, I don't think I've ever seen the Lord of the Rings, the animated version. So I'll have to, I guess I'll have to seek that out. Maybe it's time. <laughs> uh, great pick, Lisa. Uh, Shannon, what's your, what's your next pick? My next pick is a book that uh, starting in third grade, after the first time I discovered it in our school library, I consistently checked out that we would go back and every two weeks and I would just say, renew this. And the librarian would renew it, renew this, renew this. And then like the one time another child had actually asked for it, just like, you know, I, I can't go two weeks without this book. No, what are you talking about? But it is uh, Delaire's book of Greek myths. Oh, yeah. yes. Ooh, that nice. book made a massive, massive impression on me as a kid. Um, and then when I moved on to middle school, it was not in the middle school library. And my mother soothed me by throwing me the rest of the Nancy Drew series and trying to find other <laughs> things to distract me. But the illustrations and those stories just stuck with me. Uh, and then, you know, here we come into high school and it's like, you know, oh, wait, there's a Greek myths course. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, you know, here I am plunging into Edith Hamilton and going like, whoa, wait. Whoa, you know, they, 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 they were not married. What is this? <laughs> because the Delaire books <laughs> are very careful to be age appropriate. And, um, all of these, you know, stories about, you know, the gods, you know, just taking women and raping them and, you know, impregnating them with the demigods, all of these sorts of things. No, no, they just like, you know, they, they just took them and married them. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's all. Yeah. My, my daughter who is seven asked me recently how Zeus managed to have so many girlfriends while he was still married yep. yeah. yeah he's a player it's a different time honey i said yep. men, i said men were writing those stories it was a different time 
but that particular book, um, and then I, you know, came, you know, I went looking years later trying to think, you know, okay, I remember this book and finding it and finding a copy to buy and keep for myself and looking again. And yes, those illustrations are just as gorgeous as I remembered, um, which is what really roped me in the way they would um, lay out family trees, um, add small background details to, you know, enrich the stories. Um, and I think, you know, and I credit that book for, you know, helping lead me into fantasy, you know, from mythology to other stories of um, uh, adventure, of um, royalty, you know, all of these things that involve fairy tales. Um, that book is the book that really solidified my love of fantasy in general. I almost picked this. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> I because I, I, the minute you said it, you know the the cover pops directly into my yeah, head, right? Yeah. The, with the chariot and the sun god mm-hmm. and all that, the big yellow orange thing. We definitely had that in my elementary. I remember like a you know somewhat moth eaten copy of that in an, in a school library somewhere. But I yeah I I still. Uh, I I think that's where all of my knowledge of the Greek myths and all my fascination with them definitely came from. So mm-hmm. I totally get that. I'm actually so glad you picked this because I remember reading this book as a kid and the same thing and checking out of the library and I never knew the name of it. And as soon as you said that, I was like, is that the same book that I read? And I just Googled it and I was like, oh my God, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, and the Delaires went on. Uh, they also did um, the book of Norse myths I discovered as I rediscovered the original um, which, you know, has, you know, again, beautiful, gorgeous illustrations, but, you know, the Norse gods aren't quite so optimistic. So, um, so that one, that one I don't, didn't reread and reread the way I did, uh, the one for the Greek myths. Yeah. I, it's, it's fascinating to me always how the Greek myths are so ingrained into so many of our childhood and education. I remember being at a sort of like a daycare type thing that I would go to during vacation weeks. Um, when my folks still had to work and, you know, so a lot of kids of other employees of the uh, university where my dad worked were, you know, basically at this little like away camp for a week. Uh, and I remember bringing a board game I had called uh, By Jove, which was all <laughs> Greek myths and everything. And of course, like everybody knew them, right? Like it was just like it was like a lingua franca between everybody, all kids of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Uh, fabulous pick. Love it. Great book. Uh, Chip. What do you got for us? Well, speaking of mythology, I am a I am a comic book guy. Mm-hmm. No, no, yeah, yeah. No, and I I came away from it and then came back to it. I came away from it, came back to it. Uh, when I when I was a kid, I relied on. I'm I'm old enough that they still had comic digests at the uh, checkout lines at the grocery store. So those. DC Blue Ribbon Digests that had like 80 pages worth or 100 pages worth of ancient reprints of comics, you know, that's 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 what got me into it. But I outgrew it. And then I fell in with nerds in high school who were still reading comics. And I was Mm -hmm. like, well, what should I try? Well, there's this character called Thor. And (laughs) and I was right at the I was right at the age to encounter Walt Simonson's Thor. Um, (laughs) And that is a very specific run of comics. I have sung about these comics before on the (laughs) (laughs) you talk about for formative, you know, childhood canon. Um, It is um, 
it is an extended like five year run of comics by one writer who has a story with a beginning, middle, and end to tell. Um, and it was my introduction. It, it, it not only set me up to be a permanent comic book fan, but it was my introduction to the kind of epic storytelling uh, that every story builds on the previous one that um, it, it set me up to become a Babylon 5 fan. It set me up mm. to uh, dive into, even though it wasn't, it was more episodic than serial, to dive into Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and a little bit of Voyager. Walt Simonson's Thor comics are a perfect blend of Nor- of the Norse mythology, which uh, is a little bit more optimistic than as uh, Shannon <laughs> described from Dallaire. Um but a perfect blend of that with the Marvel with 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 the Marvel style and the best parts of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's rendition of Thor depend heavily on Walt Simonson and Walt Simonson was there in a cameo in the first in the first Thor movie um his his character Beta Ray Bill had a statue cameo in Thor Ragnarok um reading it today it you have to it it, it feels a little dated uh in in the sense that Characters are monologuing all over the place, and there are thought balloons which have fallen out of uh, fashion for many years in comics. But epic storytelling. Um, there, is, there is no pure. There was no purer gateway to epic storytelling for teenage me than Walt Simonson's run of Thor comic books. That is the most chip pick that I can think of. <laughs> well, you led with the Thrawn trilogy. I mean, come on, Dan. We, this is a, this is what influenced us. This no, is, this is, this is very chip. While we were dating, he insisted that I read that run. <laughs> and wow. you stuck around. You stuck around. Which says something. There were parts of it I enjoyed. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> oh, in case you ever wonder what, from a, the other room. what a critical 20 on uh, diplomacy sounds like. There you go. Uh, excellent. All right. Great pick. David, what do you got for us? So so growing up in the Doll Museum, it was on US-27 in Florida. Our neighbors were a fruit stand gas station and a farm equipment museum and Western wear store. So there wasn't exactly like a neighborhood I could play in, right? Four-lane highway, nothing else. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't get to the library all that often. Uh, but in the museum itself, the front part of the building was a gift shop. It's a very wide building, long place, great place to run around and play. A big display of Madame Alexander dolls. I don't get that either. But at each end of the gift shop, one side had, I mean, they both had glass cases. On the one side, you had the cash register. You had, that's where the tours started. That's where my grandmother was all the time. Everything that happened business-wise was at that end of the gift shop. At the other end, you had a case that had stuff, you know, some dolls, some things, none of which sold. And behind that, there was this recliner, sort of gray vinyl and uh, red and black houndstooth cloth pattern. That's where my grandfather would hide out. It wasn't quite a man cave the way we think of that today, but that's where he, that's where he spent most of his time. And it was surrounded by stacks and stacks of books, of, of galaxy magazines, of uh, 
every Golden Age sci-fi writer. So you had Asimov and Pohl and Sturgeon and uh, Heinlein and, and even Harlan Ellison and some of the more modern 60s and 70s guys. Uh, you had all the uh, Agatha Christie and Conan Doyle and Rex Stout. And you had P.G. Wodehouse. You, I mean, just everything. He was a, he, he read pretty much anything that he could find. Uh, all the Alistair McLean, all the Donald Westlake. You know, I, I got to just sort of sit there and pour through all this stuff as a child. And that's really the first place I, I got all of the classics, right? They were just there. And, and when he'd be done with them, he would just stack them up or just get rid of them. I would take them back to the house, which was right across the courtyard. And uh, it was... It was a kind of a strange collection of things to read as a child, you know, all these murder mysteries and all these, you know, space things. But, you know, clearly it had an effect. Uh, but oftentimes when he would be taking the tours through the museum, I would just sit in the recliner and hang out and read. It was great. So, you know, who needed to go to the library? I had it. <laughs> so your pick is the books around your grandfather's chair. Just well, no, so it's the, the chair. The chair was oh, the, the chair. Is the, <laughs> the chair was the gateway. Naturally. Naturally. Of course. That's How what could I Monty be would foolish? pick. Monty would pick a chair, right? <laughs> okay. A chair. That's probably the first time a chair has ever been picked in this so kind of TV thing. Station, in this official, official, very official. Not a draft. Not a draft. <laughs> Brian, do you have a second pick for us? There was this Ottoman that I spent a lot of time sitting on. <laughs> the Ottoman Empire? Empire? Yeah. <laughs> Brian, you're an emperor? What? <laughs> I knew it. I was five. We were at a uh, family friend's barbecue next door. And I was throwing a temper tantrum like you do. So my parents picked me up, plopped me on the sofa inside, turned on the TV and found the first box they could push a button on and push that button. And it was an N64. And it was Super Mario 64 that booted up on the screen. And I was mesmerized. I was sitting there. I picked up the really weird three-pronged N64 controller (laughs) and just like pushed buttons and moved things around. And I got so good at using those freaking C buttons. And, ah, oh God, I, this game means so much to me for two reasons. One, uh, I learned very, very early on how to manipulate a character in a 3D world, which became surprisingly important as my life went on <laughs> because of all the video games <laughs> I've played. And two, this was one of my major bonding experiences with my dad. After running around the castle a bunch, uh, that afternoon at this, uh, family friend's party, I begged for a N64 and eventually I got one because I was a bratty little five year old. And my dad and I would play Super Mario 64 for hours and hours after he got home from work. And it is one of my very favorite memories ever when, uh, you know, I learned a lot about patience, jumping off of cliffs and like falling and missing the star and getting these eight red coins. (laughs) This game is... I still believe that game design-wise is one of the greatest games ever made, and I know it's been eclipsed by literally everything since, but I think for what it is, it is a perfect game. And it was the first video game I ever played, so Super Mario 64. Wow. Yeah, that's a good one. I I remember seeing that at my friend's house, because he was the one who had the N64, and the the trouble of wrapping your head around the 3D version of Mario after having only played oh my the original Mario on yes. my my Nintendo 
uh, was kind of nuts. I'm, I'm, I gotta say, I, I'm fascinated by some of the generational things too, because, um, like my father tried to play video games with me and it did not go well. <laughs> like we had like one <laughs> racing game on, there was this game called RC Pro-Am on the original Nintendo. And he, that was the only game he would even deign to try. And it was such a confusing, terrible game in some ways that he just never really got it. And that was it. We did not really ever play another video game together, nor do I think we ever will. <laughs> yeah, this is the only video game I've ever played with my dad. <laughs> yeah. And and all I can think of is, you know, when my parents, you know, finally, and I was in high school and my parents finally got us like our first computer, this Commodore 64, and it stayed in the like sort of back vestibule area and they never went in there that was like my sister and me that was our domain <laughs> see my dad taught me to play D. <laughs> <sighs> i envy you uh all right i think we're back around to me since we're at the bottom of the order um i i'm gonna take one of those big umbrella picks uh totes <laughs> totes umbrella nice i'm gonna go with uh the character who was the one of the largest impacts uh, on me for my entire childhood. And uh, this character has appeared in many different forms in books, in movies, uh, radio plays, all sorts of stuff. But uh, it started out with, uh, I started reading these books, I think when I was in third grade or so, and I was hooked. And at that point, I had to uncover basically every adaptation of this character ever. And that is, of course, Sherlock Holmes. Um, so i I started reading the arthur conan doyle i remember having this big hardcover bound volume that i was reading in class and like this is third grade like my my friends were not reading like mystery stories right like they were still reading like young like you know the the stuff that you read when you're when you're eight years old or whatever but i remember going uh to halloween dressed up I had like a little deer stalker and a cloak <laughs> and I took the Aww. pipe that my dad used to smoke and I remember almost tripping and falling and almost choking on the pipe. And I just, I loved, I wanted to be a detective so bad. I had a magnifying oh, glass yes. that my, mm-hmm. my mother had given me and just all of the accoutrements and so I sought out all of the various, I remember going with my, my dad to the video store and we would have to go, this is the era, you know, and on the, on the previous, uh, installment of this, uh, uh, subject, I heard a lot of the other panelists were talking about the, the difficulty, the scarce, scarcity and difficulty of finding things, uh, when many of us were kids, right? Like, cause you didn't mm-hmm. have the internet, you didn't have streaming services, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it was like a struggle. And so I remember going to different video stores trying to find the basil rathbone movies i had not seen yet and trying to find even like a list of those movies like you know i could fortunately like my parents being both librarians we had like these film reference books at home so i could like look these things up and sort of check them off as i went and i never really questioned the fact that so many of those stories seem to involve nazis which timing wise (laughs) is actually kind of weird when you think about it (laughs) so you, you needed channel 44 I, we, what we did, um, we did see those on, including our channel 44, which is one of our PBS channels. They did show up every once in a while, uh, and I would have to, you know, go page through the old TV guys and see when things were on and, and sort of see what was going on that week. But the other part of this that ended up being a huge inspiration, a huge connection to this is the Jeremy Brett 
Sherlock Holmes on, right. uh, which showed up on Mystery. Uh, my yes. mother is a huge mystery novel fan. It's like the thing she reads, basically, well, almost to the exclusion of anything else. And so mm. she used to sit down and watch Mystery on PBS. Uh, and I remember to my, like, I can do the whole theme song when the Edward Gorey animation, you know, in my mm-hmm. head, like I can see mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I used to like sneak around the corner and like watch some of them, but it was really the Sherlock <laughs> Holmes were like the first ones I was allowed to watch with her. And I went back and rewatched a bunch of them, uh, several years ago now. And I was amazed at how many of them I remembered, like all the plots or these little details here and there. Um, and some of them were from the stories, but a lot of them were just watching those episodes. So I, I that basically a, a lifelong love of Sherlock Holmes in his many forms, but really in the original form because those are those are the best. Some oh yeah, best. I I read them all the first time in that chair. Honestly, <laughs> I'm, I'm me serious. too. Creepy enough. No, Sherlock Holmes uh, was is definitely on my list as well, but I didn't want to have it number two because I didn't want to do a second umbrella uh, <laughs> topic. <laughs> and then um, I came along. All umbrellas. So, I mean, I have. I can't. I don't even know how many different anthology copies I have because I, if I would go into an antique store and I would see like these beautiful versions of it. Oh, I had to buy it. Like it just needs to be. And, um, in Slack, we were talking about, um, cost. I was talking about my Zorro costumes, um, mm. and how I, um, <laughs> dressed up as Zorro. Uh, I two love years that in it's a row. plural Zorro costumes. Yes. Yes. Twice, two years in a row for Halloween. Um, but I think I'm pretty sure the year after, uh, I was Sherlock Holmes, um, complete with my dad's pipe. And, and, and I don't know why, but I just, oh, he was so smart and it made me feel smart if I figured out even a tiny little bit right, yeah. of the story. Uh, cause obviously I read them young enough to where I hadn't, I, I couldn't solve the whole thing, but I, completely and totally and utterly agree Sherlock Holmes is amazing I all mine are ratty paperbacks by the way like literally disintegrating <laughs> in my bookshelf I love hearing all these childhood things from each of you and piecing to oh yeah that's definitely you <laughs> <laughs> um, all right we have gotten we've gone around twice it's been uh, pretty close to uh, an hour and a half here so I think we're gonna do a little bit of bring out your dead if you've got uh, a few more things on your list that you'd like to quickly mention, then uh, quickly, feel free to go th- quickly <laughs> mention <laughs> lightning round. Uh, feel free to go through them here. Quinn, anything else? All right. Just quick mention for my other two things. One, the Runaways comic book series, which mm. was the first comic book series that I ever truly loved. And I'm very excited to keep experiencing it because now it's back and coming out with new things. And In the Heights, which is the first musical that I ever Aww. loved, which started... I mean, it was My mom was a musicals nerd, so I've been listening to them my whole life. But like that was mine. And now I talk about musicals professionally. So it's great. <laughs> Lights up on Wuthering Heights. No, wait, that's not right. (laughs) Excellent. Kathy, anything else from you? Yes. So one TV show, Reading Rainbow. Oh, Um, nice. Always Mm. singing the theme song at recess um, while on the swings. Uh, And then uh, My Little Ponies, (gasps) uh, both the TV show and, of course, the toys. 
Um, and then the books, uh, Little House on the Prairie, which yes. also the TV show. Yeah. Um, and it was really cool when I learned that the, um, real person that Nellie was, uh, created after is actually buried in my hometown. Wow. So I have been to her grave, which is not weird at all. So yes. Nope. <laughs> nope. I've been to a bunch of the Laura Ingalls homesteads because my cousins who I went cross country with were huge Laura Ingalls Wilder fans. As am I, it's sort of like I a rite of passage in our family. I love that about I you. Thought, oh my God, that's the greatest. <laughs> you just <laughs> made my night. I thought you were just going to say, I've been to a lot of the Laura Ingalls, Ingalls Wilder graves. I, <laughs> she's I buried in several locations. Grave. <laughs> yeah, I have to think about that. Uh, she's not there, just in case. No. Uh, <laughs> All right. Where Excellent. Excellent. Lisa, what else is on your list? Um, the lightning round, I guess, comes down to the Austin Family Books by Madeline LaEngle, which I found actually much more resonant and reread tons and tons of tons of time in addition to the uh, Wrinkle in Time uh quintet. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to the Bagthorpe saga by Helen Cresswell. It's a 10 book series on an absolutely Barmy family uh, that lives at an undisclosed location in the UK, and they're all eccentric geniuses, except for the one poor normal child among them. And um, they have an aunt who dresses herself in cheesecloth, quote unquote, in the style of the Grecians and throws pots all day, a four-year-old pyromaniac, um, a really grumpy BBC writer, a bunch of child geniuses. It's chaotic, and um, it's a really good primer for... Um, reading a lot of Woodhouse later, if you ask me. Um, also, mm-hmm. formative childhood canon moment. I got the chicken pox in sixth grade, and my mother went to the library to get me books. And when she came back, she dropped the I volume of the encyclopedia on me, and then Animal Farm by George Orwell and said, here, see how you like this. And um, again, formative moment, because when you are in sixth grade and you are reading what is basically (laughs) supposed to be a metaphor for the Soviet Union and are seething at injustice and itching all over your body at the same time, um, it turns (laughs) out that... You develop some very strong opinions on worker labor relations that um, will not make you a good corporate American cog 20 years later. <laughs> so so it's mostly a whole lot of reading because um, I was raised in a household where we were allowed a half hour of TV a day. And if you wanted more, you had to read for it first. And yeah. my mother was no dummy because I would just fall into a book and stay there for hours. And... As a result, like television, oh, with the exception of three, two, one contact, which should also be called a formative oh, thing. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. But sure. like TV, popular TV, with the exception of like Star Blazers and three, two, one contact, like from 1977 to about 1994, it's just a vast waste, a, a vast blank space. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> no one remembers that time. It's yeah. Because blood. it's all about the <laughs> communist chicken pox. Anyway, that's me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Mm-hmm. Shannon, what else was for you? Did you have? Um, a few things. Um, I credit uh, the original Super Friends uh, cartoon show mm-hmm. for getting me into comics in the first place. Um, I was rabid for this is my umbrella. I was rabid for books about witches, um, little short chapter books about witches, the resident witch where this, you know, little girl, witch um, haunts an amusement park, uh, the blue nosed witch where she joins a troop of trick or treaters and they all just think she's another trick or treater, the Wednesday witch where she flies a um, vacuum cleaner. Um, the letter of the witch in the ring, uh, all of these, um, 
I think, you know, sort of led me into where um, I am these days, where I will pick up a book like Harry Potter and see what it's like. And four chapters in at the bookstore, oh, I should just buy this and take it home. Um, <laughs> things like that. Uh, and I will also say um, I was right at the perfect age for um, the beginning of MTV, which shaped nice. my music, my music tastes. And yeah, basically broke me away from my parents' country music forever. Thank God. <laughs> oh, thank God. Nice. Yes. Nice. Excellent. All right. Chip, what else filled out your list? I've got one last thing to throw out, and it's a category of uh, reading material that I will call nerd cyclopedias. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in that category, I'm going to include things like the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Uh, and DC's counterpart, Who's Who, all the way up to, and I was more a child at heart than a child at the time, but like the Rick Sternbach and Michael Okuda oh, yeah. Star Trek technical yeah. manuals. Technical manuals. Yep. Yeah, yep. things like that. Love those. Are you the guy in Galaxy Quest that saved Tim Allen at the end? Yes. <laughs> the Marvel Handbook, uh, steered mostly, I believe, by uh, Mark Grunwald, famous uh, editor and writer at Marvel, and the Sternbach Okuda Star Trek uh, technical manual and the encyclopedias and stuff that came out at that time. Uh, there was such a love of the property that went into those things. It gave you way more information than you would ever need to have about these characters, stuff that would never yeah, come right. out in the average TV episode or the, um, or, or, or a, or a single issue of a comic. But, just like uh, the Thor comics just sort of uh, prepped my brain for epic storytelling, long form continuity and things like that. Um, these these nerd cyclopedias prepped me for wanting to know everything about the uh, about the things that I loved on television and in comics. Um, maybe maybe too much. Maybe there's uh, maybe there's something to be said for leaving things for the imagination to fill in. But I think that there I think the fact that I know what inertial dampeners are, <laughs> <laughs> that I actually know what inertial dampeners are, uh, tells me that this stuff really, really wired wired me for how I was going to appreciate entertainment from that point forward. There is a devouring point in in when you get immersed in any sort of universe. I, I believe on the first part of this episode, Tony Sindelar picked um, a guide to the Star Wars universe, which mm-hmm. is a also a book that I have a copy of that I famously got caught reading during my math class in eighth grade because I was just <laughs> I was just reading it cover to cover and I was really bored in math class. But like I, I totally get you, Chip. Like I have those technical manuals. I have a whole bunch of like essential guide things to the Star Wars universe, and I would always get really upset when I would like cross reference sources that mentioned the same thing but disagreed, and like that was like that drove me crazy as a kid. Wait. This says a Star Destroyer is this long, but this says a Star Destroyer is this long. <laughs> That's me. That is me. That is me. To yeah, that's well, there you go. I know. It's, it's amazing that I wound up becoming a super fan of Doctor Who, a show that famously has no canon. When I was being prepped, to, when I was being prepped to uh, insist that everything fits and everything has an explanation. Yeah. That's your yeah. psychological weakness. That's the key, right? 
You had to have the show that couldn't fit. <laughs> That's my secret, Cap. I'm always nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. David, what was, uh, what was on your list? Well, I have a couple of umbrellas and then one very specific thing, believe it or not. Um, obviously, it's that footstool, right? The footrest of the <laughs> chair. Obviously, <laughs> old radio shows. You know, again, listening to collections of all of those things really shaped the obviously the way I write the radio theater. But just just appreciating all the other kinds of pulp uh, fiction, right? And you know, reading reading. I, I never got around to reading shadow stories until way later. But I had listened to the shadow as a child. Things like that. Um, also. Uh, when I was four, I want to say I was four. I've written about this for Glenn when he had the magazine. Uh, I got as a Christmas gift, a Star Trek USS Enterprise play set with the transporter that you spun it around and you'd hit one button and there'd the doll be, and you'd spin it around again and you'd hit it and, and it would be gone. It would be transported. Right. And so it had the full console and little cards that you could change what was on the view screen. And I got the set of the dolls, except for Scotty. They never got Scotty because they didn't make as many of them and he was impossible to find. And now he's the most expensive of the original set. And that still bothers me 40 years later. But um, the reason I mention it is because that was my gateway into making up stories about existing characters. It mm -hmm. never occurred to me because I was four, but you know, here I am going, Oh, Kirk, Spock, do this, do that. And, and, you know, spinning the little transporter thing and watching them fly out because I didn't secure them properly. Um, Oh no, he's been thrown from the ship, you know, things like that. Uh, and I had that, was, that very playset, right? It was wonderful. Um, and, and finally the, the one series of books that really stuck with me as a kid and, and it shouldn't be surprising that I still have the actual bear on my nightstand. He's 30, he will be 39 years old this December. The Paddington bear books, which yeah. are just, you know, and, and I got, I got the bear before I got the books. But once once we had it, it was literally I liked him in the store and my mother remembered it and went back and, and surprised me with him. And so then we went and got the first book and it was just screamingly funny. And I read that book, I don't know, 10 times the first week. And then we went and got all the books one by one. And uh, and they're also a good sort of, you know, they lead to P.G. Wodehouse in a way because they're silly things happening and chaos and it's you know utterly serious to them because the chaos keeps mounting and and it is it's sort of farce for children which is wonderful and and the and the new movies really capture that which su surprised me and pleased me yes David, please, please look after this bear please look i i always <laughs> have he's looked after me he's looked after me all these years i still send tapes uh tapes of those books like tapes of the Paddington books, like, you know, yeah. like the, like, remember when you, like in the early eighties, they would sell books that came with cassettes. Yes. Like, mm -hmm. oh, yes. yeah, I used to listen to a ton of things and the Paddington, the Paddington books were definitely a big chunk of those. I'm done. I'm done. I'm good. Hi, Brian. Go. Brian, go. What do you got for us? A series of unfortunate events taught me to read critically. Jumanji gave me my love of board games. Edward Scissorhands uh, was my first somewhat genre movie I ever saw. And then Powerpuff Girls, which uh, taught me very early oh, on yeah. that it was cool to love the girls things, too. <laughs> efficiently delivered and excellent choices. Still feeling old now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll round it out. A um, couple of the, the book series that were already mentioned. Discworld and Little House on the Prairie uh, were totally two of my huge ones. Um, a bunch of other book series for me. 
the uh, the three investigators was my next mystery series. I never yeah. really got in the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, but the three investigators was my jam because they had a hideout in a junkyard with like a buried <laughs> mobile trailer, yeah, periscope. Yes, yes, that and they always used Tunnel Two. There was never a something one. Yeah, I know. Well, right. What was up with that? Uh, other fantasy series that I was super big in because my my family all read fantasy series. Uh, it was sort of why mostly YA leaning stuff. So the Dark is Rising, which I've spoken about before. Uh, the Prydane Chronicles by Lloyd Alexander, where I was mm-hmm. a long running family fa- favorite, uh, and of course Chronicles of Narnia. Oh yeah, forgot Narnia. <laughs> how did I forget Narnia? Yeah, how do we all forget these things? <laughs> because we grew up. <laughs> Touche. Oh, we got into well lipstick played. and nylons, everybody. Yes, we are all Susan. Re- reference acknowledged. <laughs> the other other series of books that I was super into. Um, I don't know if anyone else has read these. The Great Brain series by yes! Jack Fitzgerald. Yes, yes! Yep. yes! I love that series. The illustrations were amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. So Such a good. random series about like it's like turn of the was it like early um, JD 20th century? And Frankie, yeah, and they were in Utah. They were the only Catholic yeah, Utah, family for miles and miles and there. miles. That's how I learned what the term Gentile meant. <laughs> Exactly, <laughs> and there was just this. There, there, there. It was such a fun series. Like Tom always got away with everything. They had Sven, the oldest brother, because Mama yes. was Swedish, and um, eventually the Great Brain has to go to boarding school. And oh, oh yeah, those were always the best stories. That's how I learned you could make a key imprint out of a bar of soap. The, these important things you learn when you're a child. Whatever that, you do, though, do not Google is. for what happened to everybody in real life because it's terribly depressing. Oh, I'm, just war- no. I'm just warning you now. Don't oh, do no. that. Please okay. don't do it. Thank I didn't. You. I regret Thank it. Thank you. All right. Uh, for movies, um, these people talk a lot, I think, on these on these uh, about sense of humor. For me, the Marx Brothers. My, my yeah. parents would like rent tons of Marx Brothers movies for me. And I think I would just like literally roll on the floor laughing. I thought they were so funny. Um, I listened, I had trouble falling asleep a lot as a kid. So I listened to like tapes, books on tape and stuff like that. Radio dramas. So I listened to, I had these like, uh, omnibus collections of all these old radio dramas and they were just snippets of like Jack Benny, George Burns, Fred Allen, uh, Amos and Andy, like basically everything. Um, yeah, Ozzie and Harriet, you know, like all the like little like clips of all those. And I just would listen to those incest. I think I wore out the tapes. Um, Stan Freeberg, specifically his like revival CBS series, which I can still sing the entire theme song to. And I, I have the whole set on tape too. I do love those Stan Freeberg. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will quote it at, to, to no end. So I will not start because I will never finish. And then the last two things for me, uh, I didn't really have, I didn't have a computer until I was in like sixth grade, but I do remember lying on the, uh, a mattress on the floor at my, uh, with the lake house that we used to go to for the summer that was my uncle's and my cousin my cousin's husband had brought his Amiga and he was playing Might and Magic 2 and it was the most captivating thing I've ever seen it's basically just a, a fantasy RPG uh, but it was just like captivating watching him go through this dungeon and as soon as I could buy a copy uh, for my Mac I did and I was really terrible at it I was terrible at many many video games <laughs> uh, and then finally of course the thing that led me to that which was of course D&D um, mm-hmm. which I started playing when I was probably 10 or something like that and uh, I played at camp and then I suckered a whole bunch of my family into trying to play with me which didn't go very well <laughs> uh, and then my friends and I like played a bunch of different campaigns and then we branched out into all the different RPG systems then we started making our own RPGs 
and basically that that dominated our friend group until probably like early high school when um when we started playing like magic the gathering or something but i'm so delighted that it's come full circle and i get to play D D again so it's it's just been one long through line there and that is my long list <laughs> uh well those that is a fantastic fantastic compendium of classic childhood influential works from books to movies to chairs uh it really <laughs> runs the gamut there. <laughs> uh so uh, i aim to confound <laughs> i i'm sure we could basically do a you know our own series on all of this stuff um oh, so yeah. maybe we'll have to come back and revisit it i leave that to uh mr snell our our dear leader to figure out but for now let me just thank our fantastic panel for this week's episode quinn rose thank you so much for sharing all these wonderful things with us thank you so much for having me kathy campbell thank you for your umbrellas (laughs) you're very welcome i'm glad i could help keep us out of the rain (laughs) lisa schmeiser thank you so much for inspiring this very idea which i think turned out wonderful i loved hearing everybody else's choices it's amazing to find out all the different ways we've become who we are shannon sutter thank you so much for reminding me about a fantastic book of greek myths <laughs> you're quite welcome <laughs> uh chips other uh thank you for being being the the chip that we all know and love with thor and nerd cyclopedias that it warms my heart uh happy to be consistent <laughs> consistency when you want you consistency so excited. turn to chip uh david lore thank you so much for creeping us out all out with the doll museum <laughs> thanks jason i'm just sad we didn't get a chance to get to the return of frank cannon the tv movie sequel to the series canon could be next, next time. time yeah next time. yeah sure it needs Put a sequel in- put it in the hopper yeah brian hamilton thanks so much for being my friend even though i'm not cool enough to like the wall oh you're welcome a word which here means i'm grateful for your presence and i'm glad that you're on this podcast with me and i am dan morin thanks so much out there to everybody for listening and we will see you next time <laughs>